Hello everyone and welcome to the Oxford Martin School. My name is Charles Godfrey, I'm the director. Um, before uh, welcoming our speaker this evening, can I also welcome uh, Melanie Wellam, the Chief Executive of BBSRC, and Akam Doberman, the uh, CEO of Rothamsted Research. You're both very welcome at the school. Uh, it's an enormous pleasure to welcome uh, Otteline, Dame Otteline Laser, to uh, the school. Uh, Otteline is a hugely distinguished plant molecular biologist. She's director of the Sainsbury's lab at the University of Cambridge. And I think that is that the picture from your window there? Otteline's office looks out over the uh, botanic garden. She's professor of plant development. She's active in a huge number of other things in the UK. She's a fellow of the Royal Society and she chairs the Royal Society's uh, Policy Expert Advisory Committee. She's a member of the Council for Science and Technology that directly advises the Prime Minister on those issues. And as I said, she was uh, made a dame in 2017. Otteline, you're very welcome here. Please come and give your talk. Thank you for the invitation. It's really a, a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been sort of going over in various ways what I wanted to talk about. I was originally going to give a sort of very general Aunt Plants wonderful talk and then decided that the opportunity was actually too good to miss with this kind of mixed audience um, instead to talk about, about GM at some level. I very rarely talk about GM in that defined way, and you'll see as I go through why I very rarely talk about GM in that defined way, but I think now is actually an extraordinarily important moment to start thinking about it again in a, in a different way. Okay, so that, that's the, the preamble. So, um, as I understand it, this, is, this seminar is part of a series in the kind of general kind of food futures uh, books. And I think one of the things that is very clear about the future of food is there is a very broadly held consensus about what's needed. I, I wrote this slide and then I found something almost exactly the same on the Martin School website. Um, <coughs> everybody pretty much agrees that what we need is this you know, reliable, resilient supply of food that is safe, obviously, and indeed nutritious and affordable, and it's produced in a way that's environmentally sustainable, and if there are any risks, and certainly when there are benefits, they should be equitably shared in an appropriate way across the food chain. So, uh, very clear, everybody's pretty much can sign up to this thing, and yet we are in a situation where many of the uh, the issues that surround these common goals are highly contentious. So how you go about achieving this is very unclear. And um, my area, which is plant genetics, is um, particularly contentious. So what are the contributions for plant genetics to delivering these goals? And they are particularly cont contentious in the context of, of genetically modified crops. And that the quality of the debate around GM, in my opinion, is very poor and, um, and highly polarized and not helpful. And uh, having worked in this space more or less through the whole period of time when this debate has been going on from its inception forward, um, it's been interesting watching the discussion about the debate. So... <laughs> Generally speaking, I would say there are two 
hypotheses for why it is that GM is so controversial. And one of them, <coughs> which is a kind of classic deficit model, um, has been around for a long time, right from the beginning, and refuses to go away, despite the incredibly powerful evidence that um, it really has nothing to do with it. So there are still many people of the view that GM is perceived as dangerous just because people don't understand what it is. And if only we explained it to people, these people, whoever they may be, then everything will be fine. <coughs> It's there, and as I say, it refuses to go away as an explanation, despite the very good evidence that it's not what's going on. There is much better evidence that what's going on, you can frame it in various different ways. I like to frame it in the context of social identity theory. So GM has become a kind of poster child for nasty profit-driven agriculture, and nasty profit-driven agriculture has associated with it a variety of characteristics that grow, go completely against those goals that everybody um, uh, agrees are good goals. So uh, it's supposed to be a poor in the context of food safety. It's supposed to be very uh, um, poor in the context of uh, equality across the food supply chain, and it's supposed to be very poor in the context of its environmental sustainability. And unfortunately for those of us working in, in science, science has become associated with that whole package. Profit-driven, nasty agriculture is science-driven, whereas the nice sort of agriculture is all about nature. And the science-focused stuff is terribly kind of reductionist and, and, and unsophisticated in a way, whereas the nature stuff is all lovely and holistic. And you see this very straightforwardly in supermarkets. If you label your food as natural, however incredibly unhealthy it might be, if it's labeled natural, it, it, it will sell and it's lovely. And then um, this is, I, I, I'm very much like this advert for um, a particular sort of source but um, it is uh, very direct. Scientists should not be allowed to make food. Um, I don't know if you can read this thing here, but it says if, if, sci if you let scientists loose on it, it'll all be about efficiency and all the rest of it, and it will taste horrible. And, you know. <laughs> and, and okay, so this is obviously a slightly jokey advert, but at the same time, um, it, it, it's an advert. It's selling you food, and it says science has nothing to do with this food because science would not create high-quality food. And then, you know, in this nature-science uh, dichotomy that the, one of the loudest people is um, His Royal Highness, <coughs> uh, the Prince of Wales. And uh, these are quotes from a Reith lecture he gave in, in 2011, which absolutely uh, um, yeah, highlight this tension that is perceived to be going on. Um, we're told that science has all the answers. That's the, the, the depiction of science as kind of arrogant and, and, and reductionist, as they say, when actually we should be thinking about nature, which is this much more lovely, holistic, complex, beautiful thing. And we need to restore the balance between the um, reason of instinctive wisdom and this, the rational insights of scientific analysis, as those, those two things were completely separate. And, um, you know, we need to show greater respect for the genius of nature's designs. This stuff, as I say, you know, Prince Charles doesn't, it's, it's unusual that people go, yes, we, we agree with Prince Charles, but nonetheless, this, this kind of narrative is very common in, in the entire debate. And this is where this kind of idea of social identity comes into play. So social identity theory was um, uh, developed uh, primarily by Henri Tejfel and is about 
uh, a very deeply held psychological mechanism for dealing with um, insecurity and fear of, fear of the unknown. And what you do is you get together in an in-group and you all tell each other how correct you are and how wonderful and support each other. Well, that, that, that's not too bad. But un unfortunately, part of the whole thing requires there to be an out-group. So part of the bonding of the in-group is that we don't like those people over there who disagree with us. And, and uh, as I say, lots of um, very um, impressive experiments arbitrarily dividing people into groups who within hours will adopt this in-group, out-group idea. They support the people in their group. They don't like the people in that group, even when you've given those groups completely arbitrary things that they like and don't like, which are the basis of these experiments. So you wind up with in group favoritism and out-group derogation and within-group social inf influence, which homogenizes both the, the, the opinions of the in-group, but also the opinions of the out-group, and then you have polarization. And that you can see incredibly clearly in the context of this science nature, and actually um, rather more broadly in the concept of science as a activity done by strange boffins in labs versus people. And um, particularly if those scientists are kind of corporate and therefore profit-driven, um, you wind up with um, the, the in-group, who are these scientists who are, you know, feel embattled in their labs, who think they're doing a, a good job trying to feed the world, um, um, pitted against the out-group, these people who, who seem to not like the job that they're trying to do. So this is the in-group and the out-group, and the, the, the identity of these scientists is that they're wonderful, rational, knowledgeable, innovative people. The identity of the people is that they're much more holistic and intuitive, and the scientists don't like the people because they think they're irrational and Luddite, and the people don't like the scientists because they think they're some reductionist, robotic, arrogant people. And you, you see this really clearly in a lot of the kinds of discussions that, that I've you know, witnessed in this, the, the GM space. And actually, I think it's that that contributes to the persistence of the deficit model, because the scientists, the in-group, it's part of their identity that they're knowledgeable and they know things, and the people over there are Luddite and stupid and don't know things. And so, obviously, the difference between us is I know this stuff, you don't know this stuff, and if only I tell you this stuff, then you'll change your mind. <laughs> and it's a, it's directly unhelpful to try to tackle this problem using this deficit model because it precisely ramps up the very differences that this um, model uh, uh, kind of defines. So, I mean, you can uh, pass it out uh, slightly differently in this science nature way. And, and if you're in the science group, reductionism is a good thing. It's a helpful tool to help you understand a system. You think you're fully rational, even though everybody knows that people are not fully rational and they shouldn't be fully rational because that's uh, actually problematic for creativity and things like that. And the scientists think they're terribly knowledgeable, and that is what um, kind of drives the arrogance um, mirror image of knowledgeable in, in, in the opinion of the people on the other side of the divide who think that they have this much more sophisticated, holistic understanding of what's going on that's, that's clearly deeply intuitive and, and, and humble. Um, and uh, that, that kind of narrative is what's branded as ignorance by the people on the science side. So <laughs> somehow or other, uh, to get through this GM debate, we need to get through this false divide between science and nature. And I think it's particularly powerful and particularly difficult in the context of genetics, and in this case, plant genetics, because of the 
the, the narratives that genet the geneticists have um, used to talk about their discipline over the years. So um, particularly, for example, in the context of this reductionist holistic paradigm, there is a, a, a narrative about genetics that it is highly reductionist. So it, uh, if you go with some you know, Wikipedia-type definitions, the practice of analyzing and describing a complex phenomenon in terms of simple or fundamental constituents, especially when these are said to provide a sufficient explanation, there is a genetics narrative, which is that the DNA is the blueprint of life. It is a sufficient explanation, even when it is obvious that it isn't. And to me, as a geneticist, this holism definition is exactly what genetics is about. It's the theory that parts of a whole are intimately connected um, with that whole and that they cannot exist independently of the whole and you can't understand um, without reference to the whole what's going on. And for me, under genetics, particularly developmental genetics, which is where I've worked, entirely what's happening is an attempt to try to understand the relationship between things that you might call parts and the whole. It's, and it's about the information flow between the levels of organization in the system. So um, one way you can think about that is in the context of the genotype, so that's the sequence of, of the DNA, which is um, happening at this kind of scale, nanomolar, nano nanometer type scales, uh, and how that genotype relates to the phenotype, which is at the level of the whole organism. What does the whole organism look like? What is it doing? Which, um, in the context of the plant I work on, is in, in this um, kind of tens of centimeter scale. And what we're trying to understand is, is what these arrows are. Genetics is about understanding precisely the relationship between the parts at different levels of organization. It's even very difficult to say what a part is because uh, always there's something smaller and something bigger. So is it a part or is it a whole? Depends on which direction you're going. And it's the dynamic interactions between those scales that's really resulting in, in this phenotype, which is an emergent property of anything of the genotype and itself contributing to building the, the genotype of the next generation. And this scales is, is actually quite kind of phenomenally mind-boggling. So um, th this is a slide I've stolen from Rico Cohen, um, which points out that what we're talking about is the relationship between um, this and the world. I mean, this is, this is many, many orders of magnitude that we're trying to map across. So to, to argue that genetics is reductionist when what you're trying to do is understand information flow across those kinds of scales is, is extraordinary. And yet, deep in the narrative of genetics is this kind of determinist, almost reductionist narrative, which begins with, uh, in some ways, with Mendel, who is a hero because he really um, put into place the tools with which we could start to understand the relationship between the, the genotype and the phenotype. So, um, you know, a couple of slides, kind of practically back to school on Mendel, and, and maybe a thing that you didn't talk about in school, which is starch branching enzyme, but probably what you did talk about was round and wrinkled peas, and Mendel's first law, which says that traits are governed by hereditary factors which exist in pairs, so you one from your, your mother, one from your father um, that you inherited, and they don't mix during your life, but they segregate into your gametes into the next generation. So um, 
everybody's kind of familiar with this, is the pod with the round and the wrinkled peas. And if you cross a true breeding round pea with a true breeding wrinkled pea, then the first generation are all round. But in the second generation, because of that uh, independent um, uh, um, separation of the, of the gene you inherited from your mother and the gene you inherited from your father, you wind up with the famous three to one round to wrinkled ratio. And um, so that relationship there between these hereditary factors, which immediately then sound like unitary parts, which are um, a sufficient explanation, if you want to put it in that way, for a phenotype um, way up here in terms of round and wrinkled piece, that's also, that's the kind of bedding in of this notion of genetics as reductionist. But of course, now we know a lot more about um, what's going on, which is where um, starch branching enzyme comes into play. This gene encodes starch branching enzyme, and in the wrinkled um, pea, it's mutant, so it doesn't work. So there is no gene for wrinkled, there, the gene for wrinkled is not having the gene for round, that's so important. And if you don't have that um, gene, um, when you're trying to build your, you fail to build your starch, and so more sugar, which is the building block of starch, accumulates in the seed. And if there's more sugar at the time that the seed is maturing, they have this higher osmotic potential, so they suck up water. And so there they are, all kind of bulgy as they're growing with, with water. And then when they dry out, that water is lost and they wrinkle. And so a wrinkled pea is a wrinkled pea because of lack of starch branching enzyme. And you can draw a chain of events which looks very linear and maybe reductionist, that if you don't have starch branching enzyme, you don't make the mRNA, you don't make the protein, your starch synthesis is slowed, so you've got more sugar. So then, and it, but this is going on in the context of a whole organism which along here is a part is very hard to tell. There is, of course, all kinds of other stuff going on in the background. And then um, this wrinkled seed is building the next generation of peas. So again, although you can describe this in a very genes for reductionist way, this is what's happening, it's, it fits, in my view, much better into this um, holism debate, but, or holism um, heuristic. But this reductionist heuristic has emerged in the way that we talk about genes. We talk about genes for, we talk about the idea that there is a gene, it maps onto a phenotype, and it's a one-for-one -one thing, and it's, it, it, there's a very deep feeling about anxiety, I think, about genetic determinism, which in my view is one of the reasons everyone's so excited about epigenetics, because they view it as a kind of escape route from genetic determinism, rather than as a mechanism whereby gene expression is controlled, which we knew about already. And that genes for uh, idea has been amplified, I think, in the context of, of the narrative around DNA sequencing. So genes are made of DNA. People talk about DNA, as I said, all the time as being the blueprint for life. So if you had the sequence, you would be able to build the organism, which you can't. The, the sequence by itself does nothing. You have to put it into a cell. The cell already has a huge amount of information in it that admittedly was built using information that was in the DNA from the generation before, but it, that, that, this information is never naked, and you cannot build an organism out of a piece of DNA. You have to have the machinery that um, decodes that and rebuilds the, the cells. And so the blueprint analogy is 
is there, it contributes to this reductionist idea, and it's problematic, and it then is extended to a blueprint for life with genes along it like beads on a string, and you get this idea that genomes are amazingly fixed, organized things that, that behave beautifully in a kind of Prince Charles, nature's design kind of way, and it's just not like that. And one really potent example of how it's just not like that is, uh, emerges from the work of Barbara McClintock, who, um, using uh, maize and these speckly maize kernels, um, was able to demonstrate effectively that there's bits of DNA that move about the genome, these transposable elements, and, and you see them, you see the effects of them everywhere in your garden, in snapdragons, those um, uh, patched petals of different colors are to do with bits of DNA hopping in and out of the genes that are required to make the pigments that, that color the petals. And so um, this instability in the genome is, is very powerful and it's there. And in fact, uh, uh, Kathy Martin a number of years ago showed that the original, almost certainly the original round and wrinkle mutation of Mendel was caused by the insertion of one of these uh, transposable elements. And now that we have the sequences of, of the genomes of, of many crops, we know that they are absolutely stuffed full of these transposons. So um, this tiny bit at the top here, in the, all of the DNA sequences of, of the wheat genome, the wheat is a, a hybrid of three different genomes, so it's actually got three genomes, the A, B, and D genomes. And this bit up here is the genes. All the rest of the DNA is other stuff, and these colored bits are transposable elements. So most of the genome is of wheat is made of these bits of DNA that in principle can cut themselves out and hop in and stick somewhere else. In practice, the, the, there are many mechanisms that keep them comparatively inactive, but nonetheless, the idea that you've got this beautiful, well-designed genome with genes organized in a lovely way on a string, it, it, it's nonsense. And the way genomes work and the way they're organized is frankly a mess. And it's astonishing to my mind that they work at all. <laughs> and so how this fits into this notion of um, the, the way genetics works as a kind of reductionist rational thing um, is problematic and how it fits into the notion of how nature works as a beautiful holistic design that is behaving in this beautiful rose uh, that's also problematic so neither of these extremes unsurprisingly because extremes rarely are are um, how things work neither of them are useful ways to think about the space and um, as well as the um, transposons jumping about the genome, of course, there are many other mechanisms that are generating genetic variation within organisms, like when the DNA is copied, there are mistakes, here are the transposable elements, there are big rearrangements in the genome that happen, um, particularly during uh, the formation of the gametes where bits of the, the, the uh, chromosomes swap over to generate um, genetic variation, but th that can go wrong, so you can get bigger rearrangements. Um, uh, there's environmentally induced DNA damage that we all know about from sunblock and so on. Um, there are um, mistakes in that recombination process where the, the chromosomes are swapping over. When you're 
um, repair mechanisms are doing your best to hold this mess together. They don't always work properly and they can make mistakes. And then, um, as I've described, there are um, actually hybridization between species events, particularly in the plants. Um, and there are whole genome duplications where you fail to make a gamete, but you nonetheless make a plant. And then um, there are also mechanisms for horizontal gene transfer, where um, particularly microbes will, um, which make a living out of sticking their bits of DNA into genomes of plants and indeed animals, um, and then taking them back out again afterwards, and then going and infecting another plant can move bits of DNA about um, between plants. So this idea of the beautiful genetic machine doesn't work. This is a not a very good um, way of encapsulating what's going on, but nonetheless, Somehow it works. Here we all are sitting in the room with our genomes, the mess that they're in. And that kind of series of, of uh, mutational events that I talked about um, actually has driven, that's what underpins evolution, which also is kind of alluded to in the Prince Charles quote, that there has been this kind of rigorous test of time over millions of years that has in theory selected out the lovely, beautiful ones. And uh, it is true that um, evolution has happened. It is true. And, um, that it's uh, mutation that underpins it and that the difference between um, us, um, Watson and Crick, and uh, chimpanzee were, are a number of mutations that have uh, arisen um, over time in um, starting with the common ancestor of those two things and, and, and diverging along the, the two lineages to chimpanzee and, and, and to humans. And it is also true that which of those mutations um, is, has survived is at least in part, although by no means in whole, um, determined by those that confer a successful phenotype on the organism, and this is the survival of the fittest notion of Darwin, with which we are all um, very familiar. This is true. And um, so some of the quote of Prince Charles, you might say, then is in, in, a, in a, a good place. It is the case that, um, that um, nature, if you want to put it that way, has picked out um, solutions to the various problems that organisms face. But that also provides a very important uh, cornerstone, I think, in, the, in the, the debate about the difference between the notion of science and nature as, as different ways of thinking about things. And the reason for that is because a lot of your ability to survive as the fittest has to do with your ability to defend yourself. So um, nature is red in tooth and claw. If you're a plant, it's not really the tooth and claw that's so much of a problem as the slime and nasty digestive enzymes, or indeed, well, there are teeth and claws also, or teeth at least also involved. But nonetheless, you're a plant, particularly if you're a plant, so you're rooted to the spot, you are a complete sitting duck for all kinds of things. And so plants that have survived have survived because they can defend themselves very strongly against um, all kinds of attacks. So uh, in the real world, plants are poisonous or spiny or tough. And the notion that nature has provided all these wonderful things for us to eat and those natural foods must be the best is seriously problematic. It only works if you forget that plants are living organisms that are fighting for their own existence and trying to defend themselves hotly. And nobody says to their children, go into the woods and eat anything you can find. It's natural, so it must be good for you. 
it doesn't happen. And, and that's, I find it very interesting in some ways that this notion of nature as a, a bounteous provider has arisen in, in the context of a, of a narrative that's about um, respecting nature and not putting humans ahead of nature, and yet that narrative depends on the concept that humans are in some way ahead of nature. Um, and that loop, I think, is a very important loop to close. And fortunately for us, um, our ancestors over the last 10,000 years have noticed that natural plants are not very good for you. And so um, Darwin, as well as his work on natural selection, did quite a lot of work on domestication. So how you take an organism that has evolved under natural selection and um, tune it through breeding um, to provide an organism that has evolved through uh, human selection to, to deliver properties that are actually much more appropriate for what we need. So if you think about that in the context of a plant, uh, natural selection, if you're a plant, is about allocating the resources that you have available to you, the nutrients that you capture, the photosynthesis that you do, um, to minimize viable offspring, your grandchildren, in the face of stiff competition from other plants and from things that are trying to eat you. So you're trying to collect as much resource as possible, invest it as far as you possibly can in your grandchildren, whilst defending yourself from the opposition. And um, to do this, plants have uh, evolved with these complex, multi-scale regulatory systems that I uh, uh, alluded to, and those systems deliver really flexible growth habit that's adaptable depending on the environment in which the plant is growing, and then all kinds of mechanisms to protect the plant, particularly the seed, which is the, the children, the, the plant's children. They're quite often indigestible or poisonous. They're also minimally resourced because that's a kind of bet hedging mechanism. You want to make as many seeds as possible, all of which have a good chance of surviving. And um, the, the, your immobility also means that if you're not careful, all your children will will live in your house forever. <laughs> and it's a much better idea to try and disperse them so you would like the seed to be dispersed off the plant. And that list of characteristics, from the point of view of us wanting to get our food from plants, is hopeless. And so human selection, which is about the survival of your favorite, is much more about allocation of the maximum amount of resource to the part that we want to eat, which for most of the calories that we eat is the seed in, in cereals. Um, we uh, are not interested in plants investing in, in competition because we want to grow them all in the field and we want them to play nicely together. So um, we've actually removed a lot of those competitive mechanisms. We also don't really want them to ladle their seeds full of poisonous things. So we've had to... Um, uh, remove a lot of those natural defenses as well over the eight to 10,000 years that we've been um, doing this domestication process. So you wind up with crop plants, and crop plants are nothing to do with natural plants, and they have less flexible growth habit. They have this very lovely, digestible, nutritious seed. The seed is usually retained on the plant so that you can harvest it, and it's maximally resourced. And one of the most powerful illustrations of that is um, the, this slide, which you may well have seen before. Here is Tiacinti, which is the closest living wild relative of maize. And they're still cross-fertile. Um, and here is maize, which has been uh, produced as a result of the ingenious, very industrious activities 
of um, mostly uh, Central American farmers over the last 8,000 years. This is natural, this is not natural. And whilst I work in the Sainsbury Laboratory that is the product in many ways of the success of the supermarket chain and also obviously the vision of David Sainsbury, um, I have to show this slide. Sainsbury's naturally sweet sweet corn. This is definitely not naturally sweet sweet corn. <laughs> this is the product of 8,000 years of human ingenuity because this is plant babies and plants really don't want you to eat their babies. So this is unnaturally sweet sweet corn and that's a jolly good thing because I don't want to get my nutrition out of the, naturally, uh, in the natural equivalent because it's just not as good. It really isn't. So we've taken, as a human race, all of these lovely sources of genetic variation that are random, that crop up, and we've used that variation to select out uh, uh, plants that do better than the natural plants at providing the food that we want. And then we've very carefully mixed and matched the combinations of genetic variation that have arisen to assemble these elite lines that we have now that are way better than their closest living wild relatives are providing the food that we want. And this then um, creates a problem for us, and that problem is that if we want to add yet another new characteristic into that plant, like um, a disease resistance characteristics, for example, for a new disease that's cropped up, it's a nightmare because you've got this genome with all the genetic variants that you want, that you've assembled into one plant, and you'd like to add a gene that you found in a wild relative that um, uh, gives the plant this um, resistance to the disease, and you can cross them together, that's great. Um, but then, the next generation is a mixture of the genome from your elite line plus the genome from your wild relative, and you have to spend an awful lot of time cleaning that up through back-crossing. So you, you can take your elite crop line, you can cross it to the wild relative with some useful disease resistance. This is what Tiacinti looks like, the wild relative of maize. And you get this 50-50 hybrid, and then you have to take the children from that cross and back-cross it to the elite line over many generations until you gradually get to the point where you've um, got only the, or at least not much more of the, this wild relative genome in, the, in the, uh, the breeding line that you're generating um, than just that disease resistance line. And it's a lot of work. And so um, people have, over the last 50 years, ask themselves, how can we increase the genetic diversity in these elite lines without having to do this mammoth crossing effort? And um, we came up, we've come up with a variety of mechanisms. Um, in the 1960s, we started um, upping the rate of, of, of mutagenesis in these lines by deliberately mutagenizing them, so treating the plants with mutagens like um, EMS or, or X-rays or something, just to increase the rate of mutation in the in the line that you wanted to start with. You still have to do a lot of cleaning up because you can wind up with mutations that were not the ones that you want, but it's less dramatic than having to cross in things from a wild relative. And then, um, more recently, we've developed these fancy techniques for adding genes from um, other uh, 
um, species, be they plant or even not plant, so you can do, do what you might call deliberate horizontal gene transfer from another plant. Um, and um, uh, on, um, more recently, we've found ways to target specific genetic changes, which are these um, rafted techniques that are um, going under the, the, the kind of banner of genome editing. So these are potentially um, very useful tools in the, in the breeder's toolbox for adding genetic diversity into these elite lines that we have. And these are very controversial uh, approaches. And they are controversial because they are being rolled out in a narrative of science reductionist rational thing versus nature holistic intuitive thing. And they are firmly placed in this science box, and this science box is associated with profit-driven agriculture, which is in turn associated with um, nasty um, effects, like poor environmental sustainability, poor food safety, all of these things. And that's the problem. The problem is we're trying to use these techniques in an environment where um, people's identity as, as good people who are in, in favor of environmental sustainability and equitable distribution of, of, of benefits across the food supply chain are using GM as a badge that defines the group they don't like. And at the same time, the scientist group are fixed in, in, in this, their identity, which is that they're knowledgeable and they know what to do and they're rationalist, and those people over there are irrational and they're not behaving in a sensible way. And, and so the, the narratives on both sides of the fence are building the fence up um, moment by moment, which is why we wind up with this kind of behavior at some level. And so the reason why, uh, you know, we're back, I'm back talking about it now after years of kind of not talking about it for reasons I'll get onto in a minute, is because um, the laws that the European Union has put into place to govern the use of GM crops are laws that are based very deeply on this science-nature um, dichotomy. And this has come to the fore again because with the arrival of genome editing crops, the question has become, which is an extraordinary indictment of the value of these laws, are genome editing crops GM or not? Because if they are GM, we should do this, and if they are not GM, we should do that. I find this extraordinary, that the method by which you've made a plant makes that enormous difference, but what you've done to it makes very little difference at all. So um, the current law <coughs> goes like this. If you want to get a new variety of crop registered, an agricultural um, crop variety, you have to do, you have to get it onto an approved list. And to get it onto the list, um, you have to prove that it's a new variety. So it's distinct. It's not the same as what's out there already. You have to prove, prove that it behaves itself um, across a field and through generations. So, <coughs> so it's uniform and it's, it's stable. It behaves itself across generations. And there are organizations that will do these so-called DUS tests for you and allow you to certify your crop. If it's an agricultural crop, you also have to provide some evidence of what they call value for cultivation and use. Um, uh, which is a VCU, and that means that there has to be something about this new variety that makes it better than, than the existing varieties. That, and that's all you have to do to get your new variety registered. Now, on 
on the government website, it says, there are additional rules for genetically modified plants. <laughs> and what that means is, if you've made your plant, be it, even if you can demonstrate it's distinct, uniform, and stable, and has value for cultivation, using genetic modification, and in the European Union now, also using gene editing, then there is triggered a huge raft of additional safety tests and all kinds of things that you have to do. If you didn't use those techniques, fine, straight into the field. If you did use those techniques, years of, of extra testing and money and all the rest of it. <coughs> and that is because the EU law <coughs> is explicitly um, balanced on this natural, unnatural, unnatural um, uh, kind of dichotomy. So the, the law says that um, any approach to crop genetic improvement that alters the genetic material in a way that does not occur naturally should be GM, and that includes what one might call traditional GM, but also the European um, Court of Justice's recent ruling um, um, gene editing, these new techniques, because they would not occur naturally, whereas those random mutagenesis methods, because they've been around for a long time, are in an exemption clause, because they're considered to have a long safety record. And there is now a massive row going on <coughs> following the European Court's ruling about whether it was the right ruling, whether genome editing should or shouldn't count, and would there be a way possibly to get it into that exemption clause, or at least some of it into that exemption clause. I, I, and I think the entire focus of the debate is wrong. And I, I can understand, you know, why we're there, but it, the law is based heavily on, on this social identity paradigm where people who want this wonderful set of common goals that everybody agrees have decided or are, um, have bought into the idea that, um, that GM is in violation of these goals. And that's because of this natural science dichotomy. So the, I, the, the identity defining factors for, for that group of people are that um, big business can't be trusted to deliver the goals that we all agree on and that natural is good. And if we want to make any progress at all on um, moving towards a system, so we now have a regulatory system that is based on this distinction rather than based on actually achieving the goals. And the fact that we've aligned the goals, which we all agree on, with this thing that we don't agree on is extraordinary to my mind. We should start with the thing that we all agree on and work forward from there rather than start with the thing that we all disagree on and work backward from there, because the legislation based on the thing that we disagree on, on this natural, unnatural, is in a, totally inadequate, really, in delivering the outcomes that we all agree on. It's not going to do it. It doesn't ask those questions. And the, the core of it is this natural is good um, kind of hypothesis. And if we're going to move forward this, with this debate, then we have to have the conversation about how we want to um, build a regulatory system that delivers the things that we all agree on, that doesn't require people to give up their identity, that doesn't deny people their, um, their, yeah, their identity as people who really care about the environment, about nature, and about equitability in the food supply chain, which is fine, 
because we all agree on those things. So we need to discuss these solutions to food security using a narrative that's about holism, it's about intuition, it's about humility, and it's about nature in some way. And that's actually really easy to do. It's very easy to talk about solutions to delivering food security that have nothing to do with GM because a huge proportion of what we need to do to deliver food security is not about GM. GM is not the, it's not the thing that, on which the whole thing pivots. We should be talking about the whole space. We should be talking about the um, requirement to reduce waste across the whole supply chain. We should be talking about the, the contribution of meat consumption to um, reducing food um, security. We should be talking about all kinds of agronomic practices that we could uh, uh, introduce that would um, contribute both to food security but also crucially to the sustainability of the system. And yes, we can be talking about crop genetics as part of a whole raft of much more um, holistic interventions. And the fact that we are talking endlessly about GM is actually an incredibly reductionist argument and that people on the nature side of the, of the, of the line are also investing heavily in that argument um, it tells you that something's gone wrong with the system. So that's one thing we can do, talk about the, the, supply, the food supply system holistically. The second thing we can do is talk about um, nature in a more humble way. So natural is only good for you if you think that humans are the center of the universe. If you acknowledge that nature is much broader than humans and that plants also have an agenda, then you move very rapidly and intuitively into a situation that acknowledges that natural is not good for you. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about that this framing of nature as, as, as a bounteous supplier of our needs is a human-centric, arrogant way of talking about it, and we need to think about it more as an integrated system. So again, this, this is an argument that, that plays well with people who care about those things, and we too care about those things. And then we need to acknowledge as scientists that um, this kind of decision involves evidence from science, but it is actually not a decision that is about rational choice. It's a decision that is very heavily driven by values. And we as scientists are not good at that. I've heard so many scientists saying, we need to move to a law that's more rational. <laughs> and we don't. We need to move to a law that is more based on the values that people actually want to be delivered from the food system, which is this list of things on which we can all agree. So I think um, we can shift the debate, we can and allow people to keep their identities as people who worry about the safety of the food chain and the, um, the uh, sustainability of, of our activities on this planet by replacing natural is good as a paradigm which doesn't work, doesn't deliver the values that people say they hold for a, a more general statement that values really matter. And this set of um, this list, identity-defining factors, I think is a list that most people could buy into, and it is very clear that the current regulatory system does not address this list. It addresses something altogether different because it's very heavily um, based on this natural is good paradigm. And so we could move to a much more robust um, regulatory system for crops that would uh, allow a much more, well, would support the um, shared goals that we all 
um, hold, that um, you shouldn't be able to introduce a new crop that's not in some way consistent with these widely agreed goals, and that the product, the crop itself, is what matters and what it does to contribute to these goals, um, and the method by which you made it is not important. Now, obviously, the method by which you made it could have an impact on uh, its safety, for example, on the, the unintended effects of whatever intervention it was you, that you made, be that through conventional breeding or through the most fancy up-to-date technique you could possibly imagine, but it, the, the primary issue is what the crop does and what it is, not how you made it. And so you can imagine a system that, that builds on our current registration system, which is not quite the same as the regulatory system, where we ask about distinct, uniform, and stable. And we ask about value for cultivation and use in a much broader way that um, is based around those common goals for food production that we share. And then um, uh, we, for every single new variety, introduce a question about risk. And based on the answer to a, an initial fairly low-level risk assessment, we can then trigger tiered uh, additional risk assessment method methods that would cover all new crops and therefore genuinely deliver these kinds of um, common goals of environmental sustainability and safety, because the current law simply doesn't do it. And to my mind, now is quite an important moment to, to do this. The, the whole, everything is, is so unstable politically, and there's, that, which is scary, but it, I think, also creates the opportunity to um, do things that are quite disruptive. And this kind of approach is an approach that's a unifying approach. It starts with common goals. And I think if there's anything we need in this country just at the moment, and indeed in this continent, it's things that bring people together. So I think taking an approach to regulation in the food system that does that, that starts with things that everybody can buy into, is um, the way we need to move forward. And I think we have the opportunity to do that, which we should seize. Thank you. So I'd like to thank Otling for a really fabulous talk. Uh, just before we have questions, to remind you that we are broadcast. And uh, if there are any royals who would like to email in a question, and I'm sure Otling would be happy to answer. Absolutely, I'm very to happy answer. to answer royals' questions. <laughs> uh, we have a question in, on the aisle there. Uh, if you could wait for the... Thank you. Do you agree that it's bad enough chattering classes objecting to us producing GM crops in our own country. But isn't it even worse that they're preventing third world countries from developing or getting, um, say, drought resistant crops and so on? <coughs> what, what right have they to impose their pre prejudices on the third world? Um, I, I, absolutely. I think one of the, um, the outcomes of the highly contentious debate in the developed world where we have enough food has been to slow the deployment of whatever tools people in developing countries want to improve their agricultural systems. And, and there are many in different 
approaches they could use. Um, but my view is this is a tricky, complex problem. It's a holistic type problem. We have a whole variety of different ways in, and all of those tools should be available to us, and we should use the right ones for the right jobs. Thank you. Question there. Um, thank you very much. Uh, nice, good talk. I was thinking that this sounds a bit like Brexit, uh, <laughs> the whole situation. Um, and anyway, my question is, um, isn't the issue really that um, the companies that um, obtain benefits, financial benefits, have got too much power on scientists? Because most scientists are legally bound by non-disclosure agreements. They lose their job if they talk. Uh, and by the, pure, uh, um, by the pure fact that they are driven by financial gain. With very little recall sometimes for people who get uh, damaged by what they are doing to, to bring some retribution to these companies. Isn't, isn't it that uh, a more robust regulatory system that controls patents, that controls uh, either formal or informal, that controls the way in which these technologies are delivered necessary to avoid the situation that is happening now, which is people are taking extreme. When they take extreme, they just fight with each other. If you, are not, if, you are, if you don't agree with me, you are wrong situation. Thank you. That a, case, a stronger regulation on aspects related to patents, to how scientists approach uh, disclosure, etc., is needed to, to try to bring them to science together. I think there are a number of very interesting points that you've made, and I think it's certainly true that the, the way that the landscape has been divided up has has indeed made things worse so an example for that is that um, because GM is classified as a kind of different special thing it's actually um, that the kind of patent protection you can get as a breeder or as a company on it is much more much more rigorous than the classic breeders right protection which allow people to um, continue to use your your lines in breeding and that division has come about because of this definition of GM as a sort of different thing. And so again, if we, if we rolled it out, leveled the playing field, and it was, everything was regulated in the same way, I think we would have more opportunities indeed to, um, yeah, to, to create a system that genuinely delivers what people want, including um, uh, proper scrutiny on the behavior of companies that people are worried about. Question at the back a bit provocative. Um, thank you very much. Excellent presentation. Do I understand you right that um, you're one of the few uh, scientists in Oxford and Cambridge who actually see an opportunity in Brexit by <laughs> being able to break out of the GM, <laughs> strict European GM regulations? Um, so I am interested in the whole of the European Union being able to uh, build a regulatory system that supports these common goals that we all have. Um, there are a number of my colleagues who have expressed the view in the way that you've expressed it. I've heard people more or less saying, hooray, the silver lining is now we can have GM. And to me, that is fundamentally the wrong way to go about it. I, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm genuinely, genuinely of the opinion that what we need is a regulatory system that rolls in all of these safety issues, of course, but the, these value judgments. And if that winds up 
not using very much GM, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm not about, yes, we have to have GM. I'm about how can we build a system that actually gives people what they want and assesses the, the value to delivering these goals of safe, affordable, nutritious food, all the rest of it, in a way that, um, that is, yeah, is robust and genuine rather than the current system, which simply doesn't even address those questions. So um, I'm not, sorry, I'm not willing to rise to your provocative <laughs> challenge. <laughs> but thank you for the question. Um, when you say that, like, the method by which you make the crop is not important or, like, that the tools are not available to everyone, I feel like, um, like, I feel like a lot of the hesitancy that comes from people who are skeptical about science, who are making these, like, nature versus science arguments, as you put it, is um, from, uh, like recognizing that the like socioeconomic era that we live in make it so that not everyone has access to these same like genetic tools or like these um, expensive um, uh, like gene editing or gene um, uh, gene sequencing uh, facilities um, and like like historically that these like places like academic institutions and um, places where science like where the capital S happens is um, done to profit industrial agriculture and, for example, not like small farmers um, or not in an equitable way, as you say it. And that might be the reason why like the treatment of like backcrossing or traditional types of plant breeding is different from uh, like GM just because of this uh, difference, in, difference in access and um, difference in uh, like products that result from uh, these different techniques, not saying that like intrinsically there's something about those techniques that make one bad and one good, but rather that just because of the society that we live in, um, this sort of like discrepancy exists. So, so, I mean, that is a very interesting point, but again, this is another case where there's a kind of deep irony in the system, which is that the reason using GM in, a, in an agricultural, um, uh, in a crop breeding context is so expensive is, is the regulatory hurdles that you have to jump through to get your crop registered. But actual making the crop is really not that expensive anymore. There's a lot of money invested in universities in understanding which genes you might want to, um, to look at, but that's mostly open access data that anybody can get hold of, and certainly um, uh, um, fairly widely um, available. That's not the, the so investing in the research in academic institutions generates a lot of data that's available to everybody. The, the techniques of genome editing and GM, they're not trivial, but the kinds of countries that um, would be interested in developing uh, uh, crops for smallholder farmers and so on, they, they are perfectly capable of using those technologies. It's not, it, it, they're not out of the realms of, of possibility. And the hurdle at the moment is that the, the, you know, the reason it's mostly these big companies using the approaches is it's so expensive to get the, the crops licensed because you have to jump through all of those, those kinds of hurdles. So it, it, I, I think the question of, of cost is important, but it doesn't play out quite in the way that you suggest. And a number of charities have invested quite heavily in trying to get particular applications out there, and it costs a huge amount of money because of all the testing you have to do, which is unfortunate in, in, in many ways. Question at the back there. 
Um, you mentioned that improving crop genetics is one of four ways um, towards food security. I was just wondering whether you can illustrate with an, an example um, of some of the most kind of outstanding um, crops or whatever tools or resources that are being considered currently. And so there are, there are many things that we have to do. In fact, Charles is one of the people who've thought very hard about what one might have to do to, to improve food security. Many people in the audience could help. And in the context of crop genetics, um, to my, so um, there are lots of things to say. Um, for GM, many of the kinds of things you can do with GM are things where it is a single gene that makes a big difference. And there are quite a number of those things. Um, but there are also traits like drought resistance, where actually probably the most robust drought resistance is more likely to come out of rather more complex um, multi-gene assemblages and conventional breeding approaches or um, assisted, marker-assisted breeding approaches might be uh, a, a better way to achieve those. In the context of things you can definitely do now with GM that will be super helpful, um, right up there is disease resistance because there are really well-known, really well-understood um, genes that absolutely will convey resistance to serious pests and pathogens that are out there that are spreading because of climate change issues, and we really could deploy those pretty quickly um, if we had a, a different regulatory landscape. And I know people who work in that disease-resistant field are particularly frustrated by the, the difficulty in, in moving forward with that. Um, and so, to me, that disease resistance would probably be top of the list of things I would want to do with either genome editing or GM kind of now. Jim. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about genetics and particularly the, the, this kind of reductionist holistic dichotomy. And mm. I hasten to add that I'm not a geneticist, as you will probably be revealed in a moment. Um, <laughs> But uh, one of the kind of most compelling narratives which I've taken on board um, around genetics is the um, Richard Dawkins, selfish gene, blind watchmaker analogy. Um, and that seemed to be very interesting because it demonstrates how you can create lots of diversity from very simple deterministic rules. Um, but from what you've just said, um, that may actually be a, a, a corruption of our understanding. It's certainly a, an extremely deterministic reductionist version. It's ultimately reductionist. So is, have we got the wrong end of the stick by reading Dawkins? <laughs> so uh, one of, you know, this is, there's, there's a whole other talk I um, could give uh, um, about um, uh, what you might call systems biology. So, so Biological systems are complex. They involve information moving both um, up the levels of organization and down the levels of organization, and they involve huge amounts of feedback driving those systems. So um, you, know, you, can, you can encapsulate that a little bit in, in, the, in the concept of what came first, the chicken or the egg. And, and, and you, that's what is kind of rolled out infinitely many times in the, in the life of, a, of, a, of an organism. So, um, and those feedbacks are, are really interesting and they're the things that generate a lot of the, um, the robustness that we've managed to achieve as organisms despite the fact that our genomes are so messy. Um, and why is this uh, relevant? It's relevant because those concepts are actually quite difficult for people to deal with. People really like linear narratives. 
That's how you can best understand anything, a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end where, where you're going along. And Dawkins is a master of taking complex issues and rolling them out into a very compelling linear narrative, which is why he's such a good science communicator. But science, none of the things he's talking about are linear. And so then you get from the same benefits of, of talking about them in this very engaging way, the misapprehension that things are, are deterministic in that sense. Um, and that, yeah, the information is flowing always in that linear way rather than in feedbacks. And it, it's there in the um, wider society, but it's also actually there in the scientific community as well, moving people through into thinking in, in terms of, of complex dynamical systems is difficult. And to understand that you really have to, to collaborate with mathematicians. Um, and it's a very exciting time to be doing biology precisely because we're at the phase when um, we have enough information about the parts at various different scales to begin to understand how they work in these, um, in these dynamical systems type modules. The thing the organism cares about are those systems and those system level properties. The, 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 the nature of the parts is almost irrelevant. What you want is a way to, you know, grow a root in that direction if there's nutrients over there. You don't care what the parts are. You care about the behavior of the system. And it's, it's the same problem um, of parts and holes and how they relate to one another playing out in very different contexts. And, and we have to find ways as humble people to deal with those kinds of complexities because all of the problems that we're trying to face in the world are problems of that sort. And, and there's a lot of interesting work going on in government on on how you use a more systems approach to address some of these tricky problems. But if I might just defend Oxford biology to my engineer friend at the end there, that extraordinary graph you showed of the, uh, of the wheat genome mm. with 80% due to mm -hmm. transposable elements, that, that's 80% Dawkensian selfish genes going through the <laughs> uh, genome. There's a question there. Yes, we, we had a, a very interesting talk some months ago in this room by a senior government advisor, an economist. And one of the very interesting points she made was the difficulty was that the regulators, and particularly the elected representatives, were some 40 years behind the science, the current science, because of the nature of the business. They weren't specialists, in other words. I'm wondering whether you feel that that might be a problem when it comes to the kind of regulation and more to the point public debate you're talking about, that actually a lot of the debaters and the regulators are way behind the real up-to-date science. Um, so I could, there are a number of things I can say about that. Um, at, at some level, that's a deficit model argument. That's, if only those people knew, it would be all right. And so I, at, at some level, I, I would reject that. The reason you go to that kind of regulation is, is not because you don't know the science, it's because you think natural is good, which is a, a different, a, a, and that's underpinned by a kind of different um, rationale, really, than, than I need to know the detailed science. So that, that's the first thing. The, the second thing, you know, I spend a fair amount of time on various kinds of science advice mechanisms, and I, I I think there are good ways to get high-quality science into government. The thing that is frustrating that I think is beginning to move with these ideas about system thinking in government is another thing that is you know, rolled out across society that I've just described is this 
desperate desire for linearity, for I do this and then this will happen, and it will happen in a linear way. So an awful lot of policymaking winds up asking the question, okay, what will the intervention be, and how will I measure whether it's been effective, and how will I demonstrate that it's my intervention here that's made it effective over there? And when you're talking about these kinds of complex systems, that's, that linearity is not going to happen, and you're going to have to be willing to um, risk or to, to, yeah, to believe the evidence that you've put together that this intervention will work, but it will only work after you've waited for some amount of time for something critical to build up in the system, and then there'll be a tipping point, and it'll work suddenly, and so you'll have to wait for several years while nothing happens patiently. And, and so the, the role of, again, this kind of uh, complex system modeling in, in developing policy has become very important, and it, uh, that's where I find there's more difficulty. It's getting people to buy into that narrative because, because the linear narrative is so much more appealing and the desire to do something effective um, is, is so kind of deep and, and you know, reasonably embedded in the system that you want to be able to demonstrate that that's working now. And, and so it, 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 lots of it is these very human issues about the way people think and the way they make decisions that we, we kind of need to understand and work around. And that's true for the people giving the advice as well as for the people who are needing to enact it. I'm not sure how much time we've got. Um, the um, environmental movement has seems to have um, used science very strongly. And I wonder whether are there any lessons that you could see from this area that could be drawn from that? I mean, obviously, people don't trust industry, but they do seem to trust scientists in that, in that setting. And there's, there's a narrative in a story. I wondered whether there's compare and contrast the two, the two areas, perhaps. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so um, it, the environmental movement use science. They, they tend to use it in a way that um, suits them rather than necessarily in a way that takes into account all the evidence. So uh, there are powerful actors in the environmental movement that are still campaigning against things like GM, and a, 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 an outcome of that has been people have come out of those organizations and are now campaigning rapidly for GM because they feel that the environmental movement is potentially compromising itself by picking and choosing which evidence it, it likes. And um, so, uh, you know, the extent, I, I'm not making... Exactly, exactly. So, so lots of, I mean, that, that that's exactly where the debate has happened. Climate change, you know, there are, there are people over here who don't believe the evidence and the environmental movement is driving forward with that evidence, but you can, you know, the, the tables are completely turned when it comes to various other technologies. And I, I must say, I think it's, I, I, you know, a lot of what the environmental movement does is, is comms. I mean, they, they are powerfully motivated to drive these very important agendas forward. They're really, it's really important that climate change moves up the agenda in all kinds of ways. And they're very effective at doing that. I, I, I worry that their um, need to keep that kind of community together, which is the nature is good, science is bad community, um, even though they're using scientific evidence, <laughs> it compromises their ability 
to make arguments in other parts of the space where there's a clash between the, the nature and the science. And that could be um, seriously problematic because we need those strong environmental campaigning organizations and we need their integrity to be absolutely robust. And to me, it's not always clear currently that it is. And our last question, Chris. Thanks, thanks, Charles. Uh, GM and gene editing are relatively new techniques that come with risks, and people are worried about those risks. Has the science community itself been honest about those risks, either inside industry or outside industry, and has it communicated that well enough? So, um, anything new comes with risks, but actually anything old quite often also has risks that are not, uh, that are, are, are kind of taken as, as part of the scenery. So I think it's difficult to argue that the risks associated with the techniques themselves are greater than the risks associated with a lot of conventional breeding approaches. In as much as you're introducing genetic change, into this very messy genome, all the rest of it. Now, the genes that you introduce or the genes that you change and the effects that those have, of course, and um, those need assessing, but that's also true in the context of conventional eating. So the, the example I um, like to use is, there's been a huge amount of debate about herbicide tolerance, which is one of the main GM traits out there. And it, it, yeah, you can have all kinds of discussions about whether it's a good trait or a bad trait, but the general idea is you make your crop resistant to a weed killer, you can spray the feed field with the weed killer, the crop survives, the weeds die, and it's very helpful for weed control. You can make herbicide-resistant crops, single-gene herbicide-resistant crops, using those techniques that are on the, either the completely conventional side or the mutagenesis side that don't involve any of the safety regulations and the risk assessments. So you've got two types of single gene herbicide tolerant crop. One of them, millions of hoops to jump through to get it into the field. The other is in the field tomorrow. And there are risks associated with both of those things. These risks are being assessed. These risks are not being assessed. And I think that's a problem. I agree with you completely that all of us need to be as honest as we possibly can about risk, but at the same time, that, that, that the idea that there is risk associated with something new doesn't diminish the fact that there is risk associated with something old, and risk has got to be assessed relatively. Is it more or less dangerous than what we're doing already? And I, that, I think, is a very important um, uh, element. And then on top of that, you've got your values. Is it going to help you deliver those common goals or not? And those, both of those things we need to ask in both of those contexts. So just before thanking Ottoline, let me tell you about the last in our series of talks, which is next week by Florian Freund, and uh, that's uh, on the 5th, next week, Thursday, and it's Brexit, Agriculture and Dietary Risks in the UK, so continuing <laughs> some of the things. Um, Ottoline grew up in Oxford, and mother, father and brother are all medieval historians, I believe. And I think that we should be extremely grateful that Ottoline has been a rebel since a child <laughs> and broke all sorts of familiar norms to become a scientist. And Ottoline, it was a simply wonderful talk this evening. Many thanks indeed.